Revelation 16, we will read the first nine verses. Verse 1. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, Revelation 16, the first nine verses. All right, if you'll see in your handouts, there is the second portion of the book here, page two of my outline. There is an interlude, and we've looked at these, the woman, the child, and the dragon in chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Then we had Michael, Michael the archangel defeating the dragon, the dragon persecuting the woman and her seed in verses 7 through 17. Chapter 13, we had the two beasts, the one from the sea making war with the saints, his reprobate followers. Then there was a lamb, dragon, man, beast from the earth, his lying wonders and graven images. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, we had the Lamb of God and the redeemed and sealed elect. Verses 6 through 13 of that same chapter, three angels declare the everlasting gospel. Babylon's fall is foretold, everlasting death and life foretold. And then in chapter 14, verses 14 through 20, we have the harvest of God's wrath. Now we have the fourth vision and the exposition of the vision. This is the third general prophecy, the fourth vision overall, because there's the first vision of Christ among the candlesticks. Then there are the prophecies from there that go forward. One concerning the seals, the next concerning the trumpets, and this one concerning the vials. We saw already in chapter 15 the preparation for this third prophecy. You'll recall that there were seven angels and that they were going to fill up the eschaton. They were going to fill up the final judges or judgments and they were going to bring the wrath of God full circle to its finish line, finishing up God's wrath against the wicked. We saw the sea of glass, the song of Moses and the lamb, 
The tabernacle again opened up as we saw at the end of chapter 11, right before the interlude with 12 through 14, those chapters. We have the opening of the tabernacle. Then we have it again with the seven vials and plagues. Now in chapter 16, we have the third general prophecy. And in chapter 17, we have an exposition of that prophecy. So chapter 16 gives us a very quick summary. And then the following chapters open up, well, what about this quick summary? Give more detail. And much detail is given, especially to the destruction of the Antichrist. Here, though, verses 1 through 9 of chapter 16, we have the first execution, the first part of the execution of this prophecy, the first four vials, reprobates and idolaters judged and cursed. First, then, starting there at verse 1 of chapter 16. I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Christ here gives command to his ministers. That's who is in the temple. Those that lead in the worship of God, in the house of God, they have a duty. And that duty to these angels or to these ministers is that they are to go their ways to pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. Babylon will now have to answer for her images and her spiritual harlotry. John Trapp very interestingly cites a Roman theologian from the Middle Ages who had this to say about Rome. Rome has been turned from gold to iron and from iron into earth. Where's God going to pour out these vials? On the earth. What was once golden, what's once shone up in the heavens, went down to the earth, befouled the streams, became a beast, became the dragon's successor, now must be judged. And how is she judged? A noisome and grievous sore, an evil sore, very much like the judge or judgment of Exodus chapter 9, verse 9, where God brought boils and blains onto the bodies of the wicked in Egypt. Who are these? They are the men which had the mark of the beast, to whom the blasphemies and offenses of Antichrist and his adherents were acceptable and acknowledged for just and true. Remember God's mark on the forehead? God's mark on your hand, what does it say? You are just, you are my authority, you rule over me. What does the mark of the beast say? God doesn't rule over me. His law is not supreme. His word's not the truth. The beast's word is the truth. What he says goes. That's the mark of the beast. It's not some chip you get in your hand. Should you get a chip in your hand? No, but for different reasons and different considerations. It is not the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is the acceptance of anti-Christian idolatry as if God were pleased with it. That's the mark of the beast. And notice, it involves the worship of graven images. Them which worshipped his image. Now the word preached brings trouble and pain to these. Their idolatry 
causes them to be upset at these judgments, as we will see. So then the second angel pours out his vial upon the sea itself. Remember, all the nations of the earth are enthralled by the whore Babylon. So what surrounds all of the nations, what hems them in, is the sea. The water, the great body of water surrounds all the nations of the earth and keeps them in their place, so to speak. What is God doing to the power of this city who has all the nations enthralled him? He's poisoning their power. He's causing it to become death, vile and unclean. Babylon's power begins to be shaken and dead. Verse 3 tells us, that the sea became as the blood of a dead man and every living soul died in the sea. Remember, those foul beasts, one of them came up from where? Out of the sea. Came up onto the sand where Jan, John was and one grew up out of the soil, out of the earth. So here, this sea, this troubled and wicked, this hellish abyss, everything's dying in the hellish abyss. All the vile and unclean things in the ocean are being killed off. Babylon's power is again shaken. Now, this alludes to the creation, of course, to the Exodus. Remember the judgment of blood? What happened to Egypt? All of their waterways became, as it were, blood. Then we have the third angel pours out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters. Now this is very ironic. Do you remember the third trumpet? That was Wormwood. In the third trumpet, Wormwood, the star, fell down to the earth. And then he became what? Poison. Where? Well, to the waterways, of course. In fact, it's the exact same language. The rivers and fountains of waters were made foul and disgusting by Wormwood himself. Now, Wormwood is not poisoning the waters of God's holy truth. God is poisoning the rivers and waterways of Wormwood himself, turning it into foulness and death and blood. God is avenging him. He has lived by the sword. He will die by the sword. He has taken captive. He will be taken captive. He has befouled the streams. He has befouled the rivers and fountains. Now his fountains and rivers are befouled by God himself. They become as blood. A massive poison well that no one wants to drink of. And notice God is praised for this. Verse 5. Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be. God is true God. When it says art, wast, and shall be, that's the threefold relation of God to time. What does it mean? Well, he always has been. He is now. He always shall be. He is eternal God. He is the God that does not change with time. Unlike these demigods and these antichrists, this God, the righteous God, is always the same. Not a feigned deity. He has absolute righteousness in all of his judgments as opposed to the beast. 
What did the beast do? He slew people. He caused fire to come down from heaven and judged them to destruction for what? For worshiping God, for not worshiping the graven images. That's what he did it for. And notice, here's the rest of the story. They have shed the blood of saints and prophets, blood for blood, stripe for stripe. You take others captive, I'll take you captive, God says. They will be brought to poetic justice. God will make it all right. Thou hast given them blood to drink. That which should nourish them is sickening, disgusting, and satanic. You know who drinks blood? Pagans do. This professed church is actually a pagan church. This professed wife is actually a harlot. This professed lamb speaks as a dragon, you see? So she will drink of this foul and disgusting water. For they are worthy. Now the word here, oxios, means to have a certain merit, to have a certain worth. Jerome translates this, digni sunt. You have the dignified appropriate thing given to you. What are they worthy of? What is their dignity? Now in the school theology, according to Noah Webster's dictionary, there is what is called the merit of condignity. This, Webster says, in the school divinity, is the merit of human actions which claims reward on the score of justice. God you must reward me because this is just. Do you know that the papacy believes in the reward of God's saints by the merit of condignity? We are worthy. We have done things that the law ought to reward. Well, here God says, what exactly are they worthy of? To drink blood. Why? Because they've slain God's saints and his prophets. The Babylonian system of error has a merit of condignity which God says they're worthy to drink blood. They've slain my people. Now you'll pay exactly as you have paid out. Let us be cautious whether we think ourselves worthy. What does God consider us to be worthy of? What do we have condign merit for? that God would look upon and say, here's what you deserve. Oh, we may not say in the voice of the Antichrist with the audacity, I've got merit of condignity. But in our hearts, what do we think of ourselves? How deep is the debt that we owe to God? How great then should be our love and forgiveness if we recognize the greatness of the debt that God has forgiven? Even so, verse 7, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. You have absolute power. You rule over all things as Lord. When you make a judgment, it is both true and it is right. It is just. It is completely and absolutely perfect. Your threatenings are made good. Your justice maintained. Your power exercised. You alone are God. That's what he's saying. That's what this song of praise says. Then the fourth angel. 
He pours out his vial upon the sun. Remember, the waterways, just like wormwood, then the oceans before that. Blood everywhere because they deserved it, because they were worthy. It's what they merited. It's what they earned. Now the sun. The sun shining down from above, bringing life and healing. But what does the sun bring once it's scorched? Men are burned. The fourth angel pours his vial upon the sun. Light and heat is intensified to vex and destroy those under the sun, that is, those worldly men. Those who exist under the sun, so to speak, are brought to judgment. These worldly men fallen from heaven. God says his word is like what? God's word is like a fire. It burns away the dross. When God delivered the law on Mount Sinai, what did he say? It was a fiery law. God appeared there in smoke and fire and thick darkness. So God here pours out upon the sun, which ought to give light. It gives an even greater light, a greater intensity. And what do those scorched by the great heat of the sun do? Oh God, we'll lay down our arms now. We realize we can't defeat you. You've destroyed all of our waterways. And so naturally, they're just, their human goodness is going to come out, right? And no, it's not going to come out because it's not there. As they are scorched with great heat, they blaspheme the name of God, his worship, and especially his word, which he exalts above all his name, his oracles. When the Antichrist is struck by the power of God's word and burned by its fire, he blasphemes the word more. You see, the intensity of God's word is ratcheted up and it doesn't draw them to repentance. They're too addicted to the earth, to what is sensual, to what is beastly and idolatrous. As the word of God comes forth with greater heat, they speak against the word of God with greater intensity and blasphemy. John Trapp notes this. Bellarmine, he's the chief apologist for the Counter-Reformation, Bellarmine saith the Bible is no more than commonatorium. Well, it's nice advice. You know, the Bible is good advice. That's all it is. A kind of storehouse for advice. Hosius saith that the Pope's interpretation, though it seem never so repugnant to the Scripture, is nevertheless the very word of God. The Council of Basel answered the Hussites requiring Scripture proofs for such doctrines as were thrust upon them, that the scriptures were not of the being of the church, but of the well-being only. Now, when something is of the being of the church, if you don't have it, you don't have the church. If something is of the well-being of the church, you cannot have that and still be a church. So what the Roman church says is, scripture is not essential to the church. Well, you know, it might help you a little bit. It might improve upon you a little bit. But it doesn't make or break the church to have the head speaking to you in his oracles and laws, in his promises and precepts. Take it or leave it. 
It's not a big deal. It's of the well-being if you want it. But the Council of Basel said more. The traditions were the touchstone of doctrine and foundation of faith. So what do you really need to be the church? Us. We need our traditions. You need the fathers. And if you're going to test your doctrines, test them by the papal encyclicals, not by the scriptures, you see. As the word of God came down with more intensity from the Hussites and later from the Reformation, the uncleanness belched forth more and more. There are occasions where God's powerful working, noticeable by all, serves only to harden the hearts of men, not to soften them. There are occasions where God's powerful working, the signs and wonders and judgments of his hands, hardens men's hearts. It does not always soften. Let us use the means then and leave the results in God's hands. Let us not grow discouraged when we don't see the type of fruit that we desire. Oh, this should produce that. Let us faithfully discharge our duty God in his providence used means that to us, well, why aren't they repenting? Why aren't they turning? Wouldn't, wouldn't they repent at this point? No, they wouldn't. They will not. They repented not, verse 9 tells us, to give him glory. This was their attitude toward God's revelation in Scripture. God is glorified when we turn from our sins and when we confess them to him and when we receive his forgiveness, that is repentance. Will they do that? No. Not going to repent. And thus far the exposition of Revelation 16, verses 1 through 9.